to the Cornell Policy Review Podcast. My name is Austin Reed, and I am the Senior Managing Editor at The Review. This podcast series will explore a variety of policy issues through interviews and conversations with figures around the world. Today, we are excited to bring you a conversation between Wakar Akhtar, a second-year MPA fellow at the Cornell University Jebby Brooks School of Public Policy, and Richard Geddes, professor at the Jebby Brooks School of Public Policy and the founding director of the Cornell Program in Infrastructure Policy. Professor Geddes researches the funding, financing, permitting, operation, and maintenance of heavy civil and social infrastructure with a focus on the adoption of new technologies. Their conversation will focus on the $1.2 trillion infrastructure investment in Jobs Acts, which was recently passed by Congress on November 6, 2021. We hope you enjoy. Geddes, welcome to Cornell Policy Review Podcast. Thank you for taking the time out to speak to me about the recently signed Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, also known as the Infrastructure Bill. Before we jump into the conversation about the Infrastructure Bill, can you please give us a potted bio about yourself and your background? Sure thing, Mr. Akhtar. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate the invitation. Uh, so my name is Rick Geddes, and I'm a professor in the new Jeb Brooks School of Public Policy at Cornell. I'm also a professor of economics uh, in the economics department here at Cornell University. More to the point, I'm founding director of the Cornell Program in Infrastructure Policy, which was founded in September of 2012 to educate the next generation of infrastructure leaders. My degree is in economics from the University of Chicago in 1991. And I taught for 10 years at the, in the economics department at Fordham University in the Bronx uh, before moving to Cornell in 2002. And I worked as um, a senior economist at the Council of Economic Advisors in the White House in the 2004-2005 academic year when Congress was passing a new highway bill. I got familiar with a lot of the issues regarding transportation policy then and President George W. Bush appointed me to serve on this National Surface Transportation Policy and Revenue Study Commission, uh, which reported to Congress in 2008. And so I've been working in the infrastructure area since then and realized that Cornell needed a center for faculty across the various academic units to focus on infrastructure policy. And uh, so that's my my background as it relates to uh, infrastructure. I'm also a non-resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, where I do a lot of policy work related to infrastructure. Thank you. After the COVID-19 stimulus package, the infrastructure bill is probably the most ambitious agenda which the current Biden administration has pursued. This $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill will funnel billions to states and local governments to upgrade outdated roads, bridges, and transit systems and other things. It's also being hailed as a once in a generation investment in US infrastructure. You have been observing the infrastructure space since many decades. 
can you put this in a historical perspective for us? How unprecedented is this legislation? Thank you for the question. It's, it's a very good question. So the way to think about the bill, which is the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act of 2021, is that it's a pretty standard reauthorization of spending out of the Federal Highway Trust Fund. So for listeners, it's useful to take a step back. In the United States, every time you buy a gallon of gas, you pay 18.3 cents into the Federal Highway Trust Fund. If it's a gallon of diesel fuel, you pay 24.4 cents. So that adds up a lot over time regarding the number of gallons that are purchased and thus money going into the Federal Highway Trust Fund. Congress has to reauthorize the spending out of the Highway Trust Fund to give it back to the states. Basically, that's done every five or six years. And so Congress is actually overdue from the last time it did this. And the, uh, the last act, MAP 21, had expired. And so what does the core of this bill is a reauthorization of spending out of the Federal Highway Trust Fund with a whole bunch of other elements that you know, maybe don't uh, relate to transportation added into it. So just to give you a flavor you know, for the spending, you said it's a $1.2 trillion spend. That's right. I think that number is about over a decade. And that includes about $110 billion you know, for roads and bridges. Also, transportation research at universities, which is good to note. About $66 billion for railroads. That includes freight as well as intercity passenger, which is Amtrak. About $65 billion for the power grid. So the key thing is that you have the core of it as a transportation bill with other heavy civil infrastructure uh, that's not transportation added on. So about $65 billion for the power grid, $65 billion for broadband, which includes rural and low-income communities and trying to expand access there. About $55 billion for water infrastructure, and that includes replacement of old lead pipes. As we know, lead pipes, you know, a big problem. About $10 billion of that is for chemical cleanup, you know, chemicals that continue to uh, pollute the water. $50 billion for cybersecurity and climate resilience to make infrastructure more resilient to cyber attacks. That includes floods, wildfires, coastal erosions, droughts, other things that affect infrastructure's performance and resilience. There's about $39 billion in the bill for public transit. And this is upgrade. So transit, of course, is within a city. Amtrak, you know, in the United States is in intercity. So this, you know, includes upgrades to tracks, et cetera. There's another $25 billion for airports, and this includes air improvement in, in the quality of air traffic control. That's the towers and the systems to control flights you know, as they move, uh, move across the sky. And about $20 billion for environmental uh, cleanup. That's old sites that are called Superfund sites, which are contaminated, you know, factory sites, something like that. Just a few examples, and I'll, then I'll stop, is about... $17 billion for port infrastructure. And people who know ports know that that's the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers that is heavily involved in dredging and improving ports. Coast Guard's also involved in that. So some of the funds are going to go for that. And there's a number of other sort of interesting aspects, like $7.5 billion to install electric vehicle charging stations. 
And of course, one of the big pushes here is to switch from fossil fuel uh, use for transportation into electric vehicles. And we have the issue of, you know, encouraging that by installing more EV charging stations. There's about the same amount, seven and a half billion for electric school buses. So converting, you know, the old gas powered to uh, electric powered school buses. So that hopefully gives you a flavor for the the type of spending that's in the bill. You know, so I would say it's basically a a normal five or six year reauthorization. That's the core of it, of federal highway spending. But the generational aspect of it are all these other dimensions that are not necessarily surface transportation related, but are, you know, are in the bill and all packaged together. So in that sense, the comprehensive, the breadth of the bill is really what makes it generational. And so I think that's, the, you know, and there's some excellent policy uh, changes in the bill that you and I can discuss as well as just the spending. So the media has generally focused on the level of spending, which, you know, is impressive and will certainly help improve those facilities. But of course, I think there's also some good uh, policy things in there as well. Thank you for giving a comprehensive overview of the bill. It's clearly very holistic and seems like an ambitious agenda. And uh, there's a clear focus on the core infrastructure. Now, we know that uh, at the beginning of this, like earlier this year, the conversation was also very much around social infrastructure. And so Mm -hmm. some of those things have been left out. They didn't make the final cut to the bill. So what are some of those things which have not become part of it, which are also important? And also, if you could, for our listeners, describe the difference between the core civil infrastructure and social infrastructure and how their funding and financing varies. Right. So let me be clear about this, because that you've raised a very, very good point. And that's definitions, right? So just having, having a solid definition of what do you mean by infrastructure? So for people who, like me, who for decades have been actually studying what most people think of as infrastructure, civil infrastructure, roads, bridges, tunnels, airports, seaports, you know, et cetera, we put that into two baskets. The first would be heavy civil networked infrastructure. So that's a piece of infrastructure, an infrastructure facility that is part of a broader network. And, you know, the reason why a bridge or tunnel is important is because there's an entire road network in that facility helps to complete the network. And you know that could be true for uh, water pipes or electric wires. So there's, there's a whole set of, of what people normally think of as infrastructure that we think of as civil network infrastructure. The, the other type that you mentioned is a social infrastructure is certainly part of you know, the, the building blocks of a modern society but they're typically not part of a network, but they do provide public goods and services. So that could be a a school, the the physical building, right? A courthouse uh, would be another example, a prison, a hospital. So if you think about the services provided by those facilities, they're not part of a network, they're standalone facilities, but they all provide public goods and services. So that's what most people call social infrastructure. There is a problem. I think with the way these bills have been presented to the public, because they've said all of other things that we normally think of as social spending, like on childcare, on preschool, things like that is all infrastructure. And that's not normally what people think of as their social services, but they're not normally what we think of as infrastructure itself. 
They might have returns in the future, but it's certainly not what most people who study infrastructure would define as infrastructure. And it's important to note that's in a separate bill, right? That's the the budget reconciliation bill that's being debated in uh, right now in Congress. There's a lot of you know other things in that bill that's called Build Back Better, which kind of sounds like infrastructure, but it's actually increased spending on social programs. So people who you study and define infrastructure normally would not say, you know, that those are examples of infrastructure. Also, America has a major problem of deferred maintenance. Mm-hmm. Now, according to American Association of Civil Engineers, there is like a trillion dollars worth of maintenance or which needs to be done, which is almost mm-hmm. equivalent to the size of this bill itself. Right. Thousands of roads and bridges need to be repaired. And we know that politicians like to cut ribbons. They like to inaugurate new projects rather than like right. the maintenance and the necessary groundwork, which is not as sexy probably as a new bridge. Okay. So how much of this bill do you think will go towards the maintenance aspect or towards building new projects? Uh, Yes, so that's actually a very good question. I think it's a front and center priority now, particularly in transportation, to reduce the deferred maintenance backlog. And you hit the nail on the head. There are political incentives to build new things. And politicians like to have a new bridge or a new tunnel or a new courthouse, something that they can point to and say, you know, I delivered that, and that'll help me get reelected. But just maintaining old bridges and tunnels and airports, et cetera, is not very appealing because it doesn't, at least to politicians. So I think there's bipartisan recognition that the deferred maintenance backlog that you point out, which is about at least a trillion dollars, as estimated by the American Society of Civil Engineers, needs to be addressed. So I think good chunks of this money will go to, you know, to reduce that, you know, sort of much, much needed spending. And, uh, you know, the hope is that there'll be policy changes that will prevent the United States from getting in this situation again, because the political incentives haven't really changed. You know, there's this mismatch, and the mismatch is between the, the needs of the infrastructure for constant careful maintenance and the incentives that the politicians who control the infrastructure have to get reelected or to move up to a higher office or whatever their, their incentive is. So talking about the policy challenges, I think this is a good segue into our next part of the conversation. What reforms does this bill propose and policy changes which actually make sure that this kind of a backlog isn't created again? Mm-hmm. Are there yeah. any significant policy reforms? Yes. So, so that's where you get into a very interesting set of policy issues that relate to the cooperation, the interaction between the public and the private sector. And this is an area where I think the United States is woefully behind most of the rest of the developed world in encouraging the public and the private sector to work together. And so one of the, there's different ways that that can happen, but one of the key ways is um, what we call bundling of project elements together in a longer term contract. So that could be design and construction or DB, design build contract together with operation maintenance, O&M. And that would be a DBOM or DBOM contract. It could last 25 or 30 years. And so the, the idea is that instead of just designing and constructing and then the public sector has the operating and maintenance, you actually require a certain schedule 
in the contract to maintain the asset at a certain level in the DBOM. And that's, that would typically be done by a group of private sector companies working together you know, to provide those services to the public, meaning the government, asset owner. And so that is, uh, if you encourage that sort of a contract, I think you can, you cannot eliminate, but you can greatly reduce the amount of deferred maintenance that'll occur in the future. And so there's a few things in the bill that would do that. So one of the big problems the United States has is that we have this strange tax treatment of infrastructure bonds or debt. And that is tax exempt municipal bonds, which basically means that if you're the holder of the bonds, if you invest in those bonds, the interest income on the bonds tax exempt at the federal level. And so that artificially lowers the interest rate on those bonds that you're willing to accept but if it's a private deal, meaning a private debt is involved, then they don't have that tax exemption. So you have this unlevel tax playing field caused by the tax code. So one of the things in the bill is to uh, help to remedy that, go into the details, but they're called private activity bonds or PADs. Private activity bonds extend that tax exemption to privately issued debt. And so... A PPP, that a public-private partnership that issues that could get that same tax exemption through a PAP. And now what the bill, the bill had, uh, the existing law before the bill had placed a cap of $15 billion total on the amount of PABs that could be issued. And that, that cap was hit a while ago. And so the bill would double the cap. So that would encourage more uh, private activity. Uh, another example is what's called a value for money review. This is only for large projects over $750 million or more. It would require that the public entity entering into this contract compare public and private sector delivery. So that is a, you know, a really important step. It's called the value for money analysis. And at least they have to consider right, alternative ways. So there's a couple of mechanisms, you know, it's not like there's going to be some enormous seismic change in the way infrastructure is delivered in the United States, but there are several aspects of the bill that move in the direction of encouraging more public-private cooperation. While we are on the topic of private sector involvement, is there a risk that this investment by the federal government will crowd out private investment or will it have the opposite effect? I don't think anyone is worried too much about crowd out. I think the needs, the needs of the United States in terms of just infrastructure investment, right? And we can talk about the, you know, kind of how we got here. Um, it's a, a set of problems, right? It's funding mechanisms that are inadequate, like, you know, gas taxes that are yielding less revenue over time, you know, political incentives, permitting. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things coming together Right. But I don't think it's going to the needs are so great. And there's a huge interest around the world from private investors in investing in U.S. infrastructure assets. There's an enormous supply of funds. And so what I think we'll see is, is kind of a complementarity. They'll be spending by the public sector will have more money to spend right on this because of the bill. But they're partner with the private sector. So I think you'll see that partnership occurring more frequently so that you know, the two sources of capital will complement each other. 
I have not heard any experts or commentators worry that the bill is going to crowd out private investment. I think more people are studying the bill to try to figure out how it can be used to encourage more private investment. You know, and, and there's a, a variety of good things in the bill. So I, th- I really think it's going to be complementary. And I give you examples like the Gateway Tunnel Project, which are the rail tunnels under the Hudson River, uh, which is about a $13 billion project. And having the public and private sector working together on a project like that, that is a huge, enormous scale right, of that project. And so I think there will be monies flowing into these various overdue, great, greatly overdue projects that will jumpstart those projects and then have the public and private sector work together to deliver those projects. So I really think it's, it's more of a complementarity rather than the government spending crowding out the project. So for private investment in infrastructure, risk is probably the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And risk, there are different kinds of risks which are associated with infrastructure project, demand risk, completion risk. So how does it affect the risk appetite of the private sector? Will we see like more investment flowing or is there like already enough flow? So how does it affect the balance there? Yeah, again, it's, it's a very good question. I mean, to some degree, I think those risks are immutable. There's a lot of risk that's always going to be there. One risk I think that is reduced by the the bill is permitting risk. So one of the big risks when you start the process of trying to deliver the project is, are you going to get the relevant permits? And that could be environmental things like clean water, uh, clean air, uh, Native American burial grounds, endangered species. There's a whole set of things that are affected when you start to do a big project. And there are elements of the bill that would help to streamline the permitting process, meaning you would get the permits quicker. And I think that will reduce the risk. I think that has the effect of you know, reducing that particular risk. But a lot of the risks are just naturally part of the infrastructure delivery process. They can only be managed but they can't be reduced. And and one of the big, of course, is demand risk. So if you have a toll road, for example, how many cars, trucks, vans, and buses are going to pay your toll? You know, that's uncertain. It's a risk. And so what I think can happen here is, as I said, as the private sector moves in to help more with infrastructure delivery in the United States, there'll be more movement of the shifting of those risks from taxpayers and citizens onto the shoulders of the private investors. And in many cases, not all, but in many cases, I think that's a good thing because the private sector is often better at managing a whole host of sort of market or commercial related risks than the public sector is. So so it'll kind of reduce the overall social cost of those risks. I think everybody should realize the bill is not going to wave some magic wand that infrastructure will be not risky, right? I think it's just in the nature of infrastructure delivery that there's always a lot of risk. You enumerated some. There's construction risk, design risk, you know, labor risk, there's environmental risk, there's market risk. There's a whole set of risks that can only be managed, you know, but not eliminated. So I do think the bill in the long run will help improve the management of those, you know, serious risks. So the bill also directs the Department of Transportation to establish a program to ensure the long-term solvency of the Highway Trust Fund. 
can you give us a background on the highway trust fund what is its purpose and like why is there a need to make it sustainable yes sure thing so the the highway trust fund concept is you just sort of take a, a step back and look at the history of it the idea of a trust fund was actually started by the state of Oregon i think in 1912 or 1911 so it's a long time ago and the idea is to earmark or dedicate, or the British say hypothecate, the revenues from taxes on gasoline and diesel, so fossil fuel, just for transportation infrastructure. So the idea is to wall those revenues off from the rest of the budget so that the monies don't get diverted for non-infrastructure purposes. And after uh, that was successful in the state of Oregon, then those dates are recommend a number of other, many other states adopted state level gas and and diesel taxes to pay for their infrastructure. But what you and I are talking about right now is the federal government. And so in 1956, President Eisenhower signed the act that created the interstate highway system in the United States. That's 1956 is the height of the Cold War. There was a big defense element And the United States wanted to build a huge network of high-speed, limited-access highways, right, divided highways for high-speed travel, but also to move military vehicles. And so part of it was not just to connect the country, it was to do it quickly. And so the federal gas tax was massively increased at that time to pay for the construction of the interstate highway system. And that happened. The United States was uh, successful in building that out pretty quickly, you know, in a relatively short time. And it sustained this model where users pay. So if you're using a gallon of gas, you pay, you know, 18.3 cents, as I said, you know, was sustainable for many decades and it, it worked. But now we're in a, a different world where a whole bunch of things are happening at the same time that caused that model to become unsustainable. One of the major ones is people shifting away from fossil fuel powered vehicles. So people, you know, shifting into electrics or other types of energy. It could be uh, hydrogen, you know, just anything that doesn't use gasoline means that you're using the roads, but you're not paying the gas tax. That has caused the revenues into the Federal Highway Trust Fund to climb faster than people thought. Other just changing driving habits. So a lot of young people who years ago used to want to get their license and drive around a lot are delaying or deferring getting their their license. The other thing is just inflation, which is really important to note because it's cents per gallon. The tax is cents per gallon. It's not indexed to inflation. So that means the purchasing power generated by the tax erodes, that purchasing power erodes at the rate of inflation. So, you know, just the structure of it over time has been cents per gallon. And that has, you know, has caused this erosion in the, in the purchasing power, you know, which is a big thing. So there's, there's a whole set of these forces, you know, that are coming together to cause the revenues flowing into the Federal Highway Trust Fund to become unsustainable. That's why there's a movement, uh, you know, in the bill. There's a goal built into the bill to kind of move away from the the old gas tax and into more sustainable revenue sources to pay for infrastructure. 
one of the suggestions is to pilot a per mile usage fee in order to make the highway trust fund sustainable. But there are several concerns about the equity of this program, the per mile usage fee, because it's, it will be applied to everyone equitably without any discrimination of their income or wages. So what are your thoughts about this? Right, so um, that's a very good question. So it's again, useful to look at the history of this. And again, it's interesting because the state of Oregon has been the leader. And the key thing for listeners to realize is that this is a shift from taxes on fossil fuel to a road usage charge, meaning charge based on the number of miles that you drive. And that could be two or three cents per mile. It's not a new tax. It is a substitute tax where you're getting rid of the old one and adopting a new one. And the state of Oregon for a decade has experimented with this shift from taxes on gasoline to a road usage chart. And so they know how to do it. And it's been successful. Again, it's not a new tax. It is a tax instead of the gas tax. And so they're going to require all drivers to do that in the pretty near future. And it's been successful to the point where other states are starting to copy what the state of Oregon has done. We could talk a whole lot about the policy benefits of that. The main policy benefit is that you separate the use of the road from the type of the fuel that the vehicle uses. So whether it's gasoline or hydrogen or like, you know, you separate the fee paid for the use of the road from the type of power that your vehicle has. So that means in the future, suppose there's some, something after electric vehicles that we think is even better, right? And maybe we think hydrogen or some, some other source of power is even better. Well, if you have this in place, the mileage-based user fee, that's fine. You'll still have a, the same sustainable amount of revenue flowing into the fund just from the usage charge. And so that's, Equitable, you mentioned equity. So there's different you know, notions of that. One is that you get what you pay for, right? So it's fair in the sense that if you use a lane mile of interstate highway, you pay for a lane mile of interstate highway. One of the issues is about poor people, you know, and whether poor people who might have longer commutes, et cetera, are going to be required to pay more. And there's a whole series of, of ways of addressing that. One is Uh, typically done in utilities is to give like a subsidy into their accounts, you know, because this would be like a monthly account kind of thing. And you could give them a subsidy into their accounts so that if you're below a certain income level, you get this kind of a voucher, you know, for so many lane miles for free, right? But that would depend on your income. So there's a whole bunch of ways of addressing the equity concern. Uh, that you have. But I think there's a a general consensus in the policy world, you know, that this is a change that almost has to take place because the revenues from the old gas tax are just not sustainable. You know, they're just not generating enough revenue. And then the bill itself encourages EV adoption. And the more people adopt EVs, the less revenue there'll be flowing into the the highway trust. So 90% of the civil infrastructure in the U.S. is owned by state and local governments. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
please share that how this $1 trillion financing will trickle down to states and counties. Will government be providing matching grants? What's the general mechanism of flow of such funds? Yeah, that's a great question. On the transportation side, and this is typical for a reauthorization bill, there's something called formula funds. And so formula means that it's just like mechanical. It's based on the number of interstate highway miles your state has, the population, maybe weather, right? And your state gets a certain amount coming back just based on formula. And so a lot of the money in this bill is just going to go back to the states based on federal formula, right? And, but the other piece, which are the billions of dollars that I read to you earlier, you know, it's interesting to think about how will that money be spent? Like you said, how's that going to trickle down to the states, right? And so think about two big mechanisms. One is low-cost loans, right, and below-market interest rate loans. And that's important because it has to be paid back. It's a loan. The other is a discretionary grants. And so a big piece of this, there's actually money for both. So there's TIFIA, the Transportation Innovation Finance and Innovation Act credit facility within USDOT for transportation. There's what are called RIF loans, railroad infrastructure financing for railroads. There's a WIFIA for water and on down the line. So there's credit facilities that are specific to each thing. And there could be something similar set up for broadband. The other big bucket is discretionary grants. And that's where a state DOT or a city, whoever would apply to the relevant agency. And it could be to US Department of Transportation. It could be to the Federal Railroad Administration. You know, it could be to the, I think the EPA would administer the one for water where they apply for a grant, which obviously is important because it doesn't have to be paid back. And then there's a process by which that agency either says yes or no to the grant request. And there's a whole lot of money across sectors that'll be paid out in these discretionary grants. And so, you know, those are the kind of the two main mechanisms are low cost credit facilities of some sort, and then discretionary grants. Great, thank you for elaborating. So we are right now in 2021, and this bill seems like a big step forward, definitely. But talking about predictions a little bit, that 10 years down the road, do you think that this bill has done enough with respect to policy reforms and with respect to funneling money into infrastructure that we will not find ourselves in a similar space in the future? It's a great question. I, I think more could have been done. So the other thing I'll say that is good is that there's, I think, $100 million in the bill for what's called capacity building. And that we should think about that as really state and local education. Right. So, so just state and local sort of educating themselves about innovative delivery. But I think people in my world thought that, say, the private activity bond limit should have been higher. They doubled the limit from 15 billion to 30 billion. My guess is that we'll hit the 30 billion dollar cap. Uh, you know, I understand why the Treasury doesn't want that, because they lose revenue on that tax exemption for uh, private activity bonds but it does encourage private involvement. So the bill could have done more, right, in, in the direction of making everything sustainable. And I think, say, 10 years from now, we'll be saying, well, 
made improvements and things in U.S. infrastructure are better. They're not as good as they could be. So maybe there'll be some other, you know, bills down the road that will revise this and maybe make it a little bit more. But I do think there's a number of good things in the bill that will help us, you know, take a step forward in improving U.S. infrastructure. It's not perfect. Nobody gets everything they want. You know, there's people who don't like public-private partnerships. Uh, there's people who are threatened by them. You know, a whole whole set of things. And so I think that it will be a step in the right direction, but it's not going to like wave some magic wand and ten years down the road everything will be perfect. So we have covered a lot of ground on this subject, but considering how enormous it is, it only feels like we have scratched the surface, and the bill is like three thousand pages itself. So. Right. Right. It's a big piece of legislation. As we conclude this conversation, is there anything you would like to say, an important aspect we may have missed out? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's important for students to um, consider what the effects of this will be, right? And because there's really new areas and one of the, I guess, if the silver lining in the dark cloud of the COVID shutdowns is that people realize the importance of broadband internet access. And that's both in sparse rural areas, but also pockets of urban areas do not have very good quality internet service. And so, you know, a big initiative of the bill is to provide funds for that to happen, you know, but that provides a huge opportunity for students, right? So it's going to be very complicated. You know, it's not like an obvious kind of technology that we've been dealing with, with for a century, like clean water, right? So we kind of know how to filter water and how to treat it and how to pressurize it and how to get it to your spigot in your house, right? But with broadband, we really do not understand the business model or the tech various technologies. Broadband is not just one technology. So that's just one example of where students coming out of college today who care about infrastructure will have all these opportunities. There'll be huge demand to hire smart, hardworking people, right, in these areas to help figure out how all this new infrastructure is going to get delivered. And so I guess the, you know, the final message I would have is somebody who's, you know, up and coming, who has training in a whole bunch of basic social science and maybe in business, you know, the, the passage of the bill represents a tremendous opportunity to get, you know, on the cutting edge of a whole lot of these things. And of course, we all read about the Hyperloop and driverless cars and all these sorts of headline grabbing technologies. But there's a whole set of, if you will, more mundane technologies that have been developed and are just waiting to be adopted. So there's all these opportunities for uh, young people you know, to work with the public and the private sector and, and help improve infrastructure delivery by getting these technologies adopted. I think people listening who are um, looking for exciting career, you know, should definitely be thinking about the effects of this bill on infrastructure because it's going to have effects over the next decade at least, if not longer. Great. Thank you, Professor Geddes. Thank you for taking out the time. This is a very important conversation and a very timely conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's great to be invited.